0: Thanks for listening to the Channel legends podcast i'm your host andrew applebaum my guest today is linda schuyler linda was the co-creator and executive producer of over 500 episodes of the beloved degrassi television franchise accordingly she has compiled her life and career adventures into a memoir called the mother of all degrassi available right now wherever and however you like to consume your books what started as a young school teacher wanting to teach her class about filmmaking set in motion a career of storytelling for an age group largely ignored by TV executives, and the subsequent creation of one of the most popular television franchises of all time. As a longtime champion for adolescents, Linda is notably a member of both the Order of Ontario and the Order of Canada. An educator by nature, a storyteller by nurture, and an entrepreneur by necessity, Welcome, Linda, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you?
1: <laughs> well, good morning, and thank you for having me. Uh, I am sitting in my condo in downtown Toronto, right on the waterfront here, and the sun is shining, the water looks fantastic, and I'm great. Thank you very much.
0: Well, that sounds fabulous, and uh, on such a happy note, I'm going to immediately address the elephant in the room, Linda. I, your host for this interview, have never watched an episode of any of the Degrassi shows. However, I didn't live under a rock. I was aware of the success of Degrassi. I had heard about Drake getting a start on the show. I knew Kevin Smith was a fanboy. I was very aware of Pat Mastroianni and his signature hat. I had heard of all these characters, Snake and Spike, and controversial episodes about teen pregnancy and suicide. My point, Linda, I have read your book, not knowing about the world of Degrassi but I really enjoyed all the ups and downs that you experienced getting it made and making it successful. Thus, I'm very eager for you to share this story for both super fans, which you have many of, and new fans like me. So let's start by getting your story, Linda. Where were you born and what was your kind of path into the world of television?
1: Well, I was born in London, England, and my parents parents both served during the war. My mom was a nurse in the Blitz of England, and my dad was training as an RAF, pilot uh, in Canada and so I was born shortly after the war in 1945 and it was a very depressed time in England. The economy was very bad, there were still food stamps and my dad, when he was training in Canada to become a pilot, had fallen in love with Canada and he said to my mom, one day we're going to go there with our family. And finally, when I was about eight years old, well I was exactly eight years old, in 1956, we... Left, uh, Canada, left England, as many people did, and destinations were often either to Canada or Australia, as some of my rest of my family did. And we settled in the small town of Paris, Ontario, in southern Ontario. It was, it was very interesting to go to school my very first day, because my mom sent me to school with my British schoolgirls outfit on with a starched shirt and a striped tie and a tunic and a blazer and knee socks and oxfords. And I had this like plummy British accent. And I thought I was just like the best. And I was so laughed at and ridiculed by the kids in my grade three class. They were so unkind and mean to me. I eventually got over it, but boy, it was uh, it was a bit startling. This big, brand new start that my dad and mom promised us, and uh, to come home in tears that first day from school.
0: Well, that's it's a it's a tough challenge. A British immigrant growing up in a small town, Ontario. Uh, you may know the great chef Ted Reader, also from Paris. He has a great line. He says, "I'm a parasite."
1: Yes, <laughs> yes, we do call ourselves that. <laughs>
0: Now, you did thrive, Linda, and moving up, you you earned your Bachelor of Arts 1974 from the University of Toronto, and while you were there, you noticed a bulletin board with a posting about a summer internship at TV Ontario. How did that kind of get you going?
1: Well, it was interesting because by the time I actually finished my degree, I had already been a school teacher for four years, and I didn't want to go back to the classroom. I, I, I enjoyed the classroom, I enjoyed the kids i had taken any kind of media studies course i could and in those days 1970s there was precious little around but i i was at Innes college and and took what courses i could and they had a, a bulletin board there and there was a an advertisement for a summer student at, at tv ontario and i thought okay this is great i've now finally graduated i think i can put school teaching behind me and i applied successfully for a job at tv ontario which i thought was going to change my life and for those people familiar with the film and television industry when you are a pa have a summer job you are basically driving cars around the city delivering scripts script changes, taking director's cars to the car wash, and most of importantly, pouring and making endless cups of coffee. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but I kept, when I was working at TVO, I kept going to the bulletin board and studying it and hoping that there would be a permanent position come up. And, but as the summer was going on, as there was anything that was offered still seemed very much in the PA zone and, and paying minimum wage. And so as the summer was drawing to close, rather than going back getting a job in the media like I hoped, I uh, put my name forward to the Toronto Board of Education to go back to school teaching.
0: <laughs> so you had submitted your paperwork for a position at the Toronto Board of Education. You're now working as a junior high school teacher. You noticed your students had stories to tell, and in 1974, you made a proposal to your principal to make a 16-millimeter documentary on your students as they juggled their two lives in Canada to be called Between Two Worlds. Linda, what were these two worlds?
1: Well, it's it's interesting that, that we talked about my experience being bullied when I was in third grade because I had, I had experienced what it was like to be an outsider and for the rest of the kids to find you amusing and different. And when I... Faced my first class in Toronto. I was teaching in inner city Toronto, and my class was a beautiful richness of these kids from varying backgrounds and varying skin colors and varying accents. And um, you know, growing up in Paris, Ontario, there was precious little diversity. So I I saw this beautiful diversity in my classroom, and I thought, you know, I felt odd and out of place, but I was a white girl and I spoke English. And I really wondered what it was like for my kids who were going home, often speaking a a different language at home, dealing with different social norms and values within their families, expectations from their parents. So I started to talk to my students and, and I was really keen to learn more from them and what it was like. And I realized how many rich and beautiful stories they had to tell. And having just graduated with my media degree, I thought, wait a minute, I think we can marry these two interesting thoughts here. So I did. I I pitched my principal on the possibility of making a 16-millimeter documentary with my students. At at first, I mean, he he just (laughs) was a rather unusual pitch for him.
0: He (laughs) wasn't
1: his his (laughs) teachers coming in and suggesting to make movies. But a few months after I had pitched it, I got called to his office and it was right around the time Pierre Elliott Trudeau was our prime minister. Multiculturalism was a big buzzword in those days. And um, my principal said to me, he said, Linda, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau has made money available across the country to support multicultural projects. I have some of that money. I would like to support your uh, film.
0: Wow. <laughs> wow.
1: My first pitch and my first green light. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, this is easy, right? And, easy. And, and Linda, to top it off, NBC eventually wanted to air it, if I'm correct.
1: Well, yes, but before we even got to that part of it, much as I had studied some of the theory of film, I had no idea really technically how to make a film. So I enrolled in the Toronto Filmmakers Co-op and I took weekend courses, learned how to run a bolex camera and you know, whatever, got my kids writing all their stories and we pieced together a, a, a quasi script. And it was really interesting because I really wanted to show the fun side of um, kids being immigrants to Canada. I also wanted to show the challenges and try and find that balance, which is interesting because it's something I have done for the rest of my life in the Degrassi series. Yes. So I didn't want it to be all about doom and gloom. I didn't also want to make it seem, Oh, it's easy peasy guys. So it was a nice mixture of this couple of really tough and surprising interviews. And when it first was released, The Toronto Board of Education were thrilled with it. They assigned somebody to write a teacher's guide. They put it in all the uh, schools in Toronto with a teacher's guide, with the idea of starting discussion uh, on multiculturalism. Pretty soon, it was selling right across the country. Uh, School boards across the country were including it as part of their curriculum. So again, you talk about a first-time filmmaker. You know, I get a green light, and then I get this, like, great domestic exposure. Then it was very exciting one day when, again, I got called down to the principal's office and he said, Linda, I think you're going to be thrilled to know that we've just been approached by NBC and they would like to air between two worlds. Wow, like NBC. (laughs) That's cool. So as time went on, we were getting closer to the air date. It was clear... That they weren't going to be showing the whole show. It was—I forget the name of their show, but it was like a a sixty minutes type show. And they were—we had—they—they they had been showing a lot of clips about racism in the states. And then they said, "You know, coming up after the commercial, we'll be having a look in Toronto." And when we came back after Toronto, the headline read, "There's a time bomb ticking in Toronto."
0: Yeah. Oh.
1: And it was shocking to me, a time bomb. No, my film's not a time bomb. Well, what they had done, they had stripped my show of any of the fun stuff, and they had just gone for a couple of the real gritty uh, and quite heartfelt uh, interviews. But without the context, it looked really grave, and it did look like we had a real problem of racism here in Canada and admittedly it did exist but that wasn't what my show was about it was about balancing the two and i i was really shocked and i was really upset because that wasn't that wasn't the message that wasn't the intent of my film i was watching this with uh, other members of my faculty and of course they're just thrilled like linda your show is on NBC <laughs> yeah and i'm going no this is not- <laughs> good it's not you know, I wanted to like I said I'm gonna sue them that's what I'm gonna
0: oh boy
1: <laughs> that would be clever Linda <laughs> anyway you know they they had all the correct releases the the copyright was owned by the Toronto Board of Education all the paperwork was in order I just was a snippety uppity filmmaker but it real I did really learn a lesson from that you know and and um, how the same material, I mean, you know, edited in different ways, can just speak a very different story.
0: Well, the first of many lessons. You're now off and running, Linda. End of 1977, you resigned from the Toronto Board of Education. 29 years old, ready for your next adventure. Effectively, DeGrassi all starts with Ida makes a movie, a children's book. You have called it the first ever episode of the DeGrassi franchise. How did Ida makes a movie? First of all what was it and how did it kind of kick off and become the core of degrassi
1: well first of all uh, i had no idea it was going to become the core of degrassi i didn't even know at that point there was going to become a degrassi i just i just knew that i saw a hole in the television landscape that nobody was producing material for teenagers and having had my experience in the classroom, having had my experience by that point, I'd made two or three other documentaries. I really felt that this was a way I could marry both of my, uh, both of my loves together. So, I yeah. So I I, I love teaching, but before I left teaching, my very best friend Bruce, who was uh, the librarian. He used to buy any books that had movie or film or television in the title so that he could, you know, give them to me to use in my classroom. And he bought this book called Ida Makes a Movie. And he brought it into my classroom one day and he said, oh, Linda, I don't know what we're going to do this with this. It's a primary book. I think I'll put it on the babysitting shelf. But he, he showed it to me and I said, well, let me have a look. Let me have a read. Well, interestingly enough, even though the characters at that point in the book were cats, <laughs> I know, it sounds really bizarre. It, I, I liked a lot about the book. Ida w- lived with her single mom who was a struggling artist in the core of downtown. She had an older brother. She missed her dad who had, has left the family. She found a camera that had, used to belong to her father and she decided to, to help deal with her sadness of her dad leaving, she was going to make a movie. And she enlisted her brother, who wouldn't take off his army hat, and he. she enlisted her next-door neighbor, who wouldn't leave her dolls alone. But Ida set out to make a film that was how we are going to make the world a better place and clean up our streets and be good citizens. So she sent it off to a film festival, and when the judges saw it they awarded her first prize and she was asked to come and accept it and she had a crisis of conscience because she said to them i can't take this award and they said well why you made a beautiful film about the devastating effects of war on children and she said no i made a film about cleaning up your garbage and keeping your street <laughs> so, anyway she she accepted the award and and I loved the story because it was 100% told from the perspective of Ida. It was her dilemma. How was she going to solve it? She didn't live a perfect, normal Rockwell life. She had challenges with her split family, with, with the economic status of her family. And there was just so much that appealed to me. Well, when, when we submitted this to the CBC, because this was the first scripted piece I had ever done I had by this point I'd done a number of documentaries industrials you know whatever to keep the rent being paid but this was the first scripted piece and I loved working with scripted material I would soon discover and CBC said we would love to buy this and we found an international distributor who said we would love to buy this and both of them said not only do we want to buy this but we want you to make more
0: <laughs> mm. Another victory.
1: <laughs> Another victory, yes.
0: <laughs> well, in the late 1980s, Degrassi Junior High hit the air on CBC. It was applauded for frank and fearless storytelling, tackling teen pregnancy, suicide, racism, abortion. I mean, this had all the kind of new elements that you brought forward, Linda, like casting age appropriate actors, building an ensemble cast. You were using fresh talent, not only in front of the camera, but behind the camera. And you had more kind of naturalistic, if you want to call it, settings and dialogue, and the, even the setting—a a kind of, I guess you'd call it—a lower middle-class environment, different than anyone had seen. I mean, you were you were hit from the beginning. Is that what you'd say?
1: Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we we got a lot of interest right from the beginning, but it it is it's really interesting looking backwards again. How many of all the principles? that have remained consistent throughout the Degrassi franchise started there. And, you know, casting age appropriate just seemed to me like the obvious choice. Like if you want, if you've got a nine-year-old girl in your uh, script, you're going to cast somebody who's in that zone. Maybe they're 10, but they're going to be like eight or nine or 10. And it wasn't until much later that I realized actually the wisdom of that Also the challenge of that, because as you in television production, there are rules and regulations that dictate how many hours a day a child actor can work and what sort of schooling they have to have and and chaperones and tuition. So if you take a a 25 year old and you, you can find 25 year olds who look like 15 and you can put words in their mouth that sound like a 15 year old talking. But when you put that camera on that person, there's 10 years of life experience that is a subtle difference. And when my characters and my kids are on camera, they only bring with them the same amount of life experience that the, the, the character has. And I think there is an intangible about that that really helps speaks to the authenticity of the piece.
0: Well, and, and certainly when you talk about uh, authenticity, One of the things that you did to validate your agenda, which was interesting, was you enlisted the services of a legendary sex guru, Sue Johansson. And during the 80s, of course, Sue was a therapist and and sex educator who was not only super popular with her phone-in show, but if you went to school in the 80s, Sue visited your classroom. How did you get her involved and what was the significance of someone like that being involved?
1: First of all, I love Sue Johansson. I think she's so awesome because in a way, she and I had a similar agenda. She was all about let's talk straight about sex. Let's 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 hand out condoms. Let's let's talk to kids about exactly what they're dealing with because at that time in the school education system, and I'm not sure it's much better now, there was not good sex education. And, you know, we used to split the girls up from the boys and have little quiet meetings about this is what happens when you, you get your period. And um, it was all kind of hush hush. And that was one of the big mandates of Degrassi was to kids are growing, their bodies are changing, their attitudes are changing. And we want to talk openly about this. We want to let them know they're not the only kid who's experiencing changes going through puberty. So we wanted to be open and frank about it. And when I heard uh, Sue's phone-in show, I realized she had a you know very similar mandate to ours. So I, I got hold of her, and I'll never forget the first day she came down into our into our office. We had a, a small office on Queen Street East, and she walked in the front door and she goes, Good morning, everybody. <laughs> out of the first comes this big array of condoms, and she just starts throwing them around. <laughs> Everyone, oh, my poor receptionist is going. Oh, what?
0: <laughs> that that's very on brand. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And so we then created a, a character called um, Dr. Sally, and she became uh, a phone-in resource for our kids. And we have a lovely scene; I'll I'll never forget it when Yick and Arthur are at a pay telephone booth, because of course in those days there's no cell phones or smartphones, whatever. Pay telephone booth with a huge boombox. They're holding and they're on hold, waiting to talk to Doctor Sally. And uh, Yik says to Doctor Sally, "My friend Arthur wants to know, like, like he he went to bed last night. Like, is he a pervert?" <laughs> and then she comes in with her very reassuring voice and just said, "No, what happened to your friend is very normal. He was having a wet dream and." Uh, so it was, she was a great, a, a lovely addition to our show.
0: Well, she, as you say, not only a lovely addition as a consultant, but as you noted, as Dr. Sally on the show herself. Yeah. Now, Linda, the show is taking off. You got crazy fan mail rolling in by, literally by the sack full. And in addition to letters, you're receiving teddy bears, baby clothes, and blankets for Spike's baby, which of course was a fake baby. So how surreal was this, getting this reaction where all this stuff's coming in?
1: It was very surreal, literally, because in those days there was no email. It was all snail mail. And our mail people would come in with like Santa sacks full of mail. And it wasn't just from Canada, it was internationally. We got mail from all over the world. And people saying, some of it's just like great, lovely fan mail, you know, that, that I love your show, I love Wheels, I love Spike, I love Snake. But some of them were what we called Dear Degrassi letters, where kids would open up about having seen our show and they would say, you know, I have the same problem and they would tell us some of their problems. And then we would also get sent stuff. And the, the most stuff we got was for Spike's baby. We used to, we got, you know, blankets and teddy bears and little toys. And there was a woman's shelter just down the street from us. And we used to, we used to take them down there to the women's shelter.
0: Wow. So I had a good outcome of all this stuff coming yeah. in. Now, of course, in addition to the fan mail coming in, when your cast would go out, they would make appearances in schools, libraries, and malls, not only in Canada, but also in the U.S., in fact, I understand your cast was recognized in the UK, Sweden, Denmark. I mean, how did this hit you, realizing that Degrassi was really a worldwide phenomenon at this point?
1: Yeah, yeah like, it, you know, as we talked earlier, when I made Ida Makes a Movie, I had no idea that we would be making, hitting a chord with storytelling that would have resonance around the world. And <laughs> and probably my most bizarre time of being recognized we were doing a a trip to denmark and i had pat mastriani and stacy Mastician with me from degrassi junior high degrassi high and we'd been doing a lot of interviews and we were all attired and they had a beautiful public swimming pool in copenhagen so we decided to take a, an hour off and, and go and, and have a swim. So I'm in there with these kids. And Stacy and Pat, they're like, their hair is all wet and they're they're coming out of the pool. All of a sudden, these Danish kids start screaming and they recognize them, which totally surprised me because they didn't look anything like their characters. And they're all running around trying to get bits of paper and pens and it was all a soggy mess. And, but it was, it was like... I, we thought we were taking an hour off, and we just weren't prepared for them to be recognized in the public pool.
0: <laughs> well, that's the definition of surreal. I mean, I really must have hit home for you. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview with Linda Schuyler, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We've got other entertainment titans, including Mark Breslin, Barry Average, Cameron Bailey, Richard Krauss, and Jake Gold. So many great behind the scenes stories directly from the Toronto legends themselves. All episodes available 24 7 365 wherever you get your podcasts. We can't talk about Degrassi, whether you're a super fan or you're new to the franchise, without talking about Drake. So, of course, I have to ask the question Linda, do you call him Aubrey or Drake?
1: <laughs> he, he was, is, and always will be little Aubrey Graham. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So 14-year-old Aubrey Drake Graham, with eyeglasses, auditioned for Degrassi, The Next Generation, in 2001. He was cast as Jimmy Brooks. Uh, if you don't mind, Linda, share the anecdote that you tell in your book about Drake, all these years later, telling Jimmy Fallon on The Tonight Show, about his audition. <laughs>
1: well, he, he has a very different recollection of the uh, audition than, than I do because it was, it was really interesting. We had cast, one of the other lovely things about Degrassi is we always have an ensemble cast and we were in the early stages of Degrassi Next Generation and we had cast a fair number of the characters. We'd seen a, a number of people try out for the role of Jimmy Brooks and nobody was really doing it for us. So I called one of our age casting agents and I said, Look, you know, you know me, I don't care if somebody's got a deep resume or whatever. I'm I'm looking for a Degrassi kid and he said, Well, my son has this friend that he hangs out with at school. I don't know, you might like to see him. His name's Aubrey Graham. So Aubrey came in and he did the audition piece for us and as the agent had forewarned us, he had no resume, but he he did the piece. And when it was over, we said thank you very much and he said well i can do it again for you and we said no no that's good thank you very much and he said no no my, my agent said that i should be prepared to do it more than once i said no it's okay aubrey we're good so he gets up and he wants to shake our hand and he's so excited he knocks the light stand over our pa runs over grabs the light stand he shakes our hand backs out of the room saying thank you for the opportunity thank you for the opportunity and he disappears we close the door and we just all there's about five of us in the room. We just put our hands down and say, "We have found our Jimmy Brooks." Yeah, there was like charisma from that guy. <laughs> he lit up the 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 screen. But now you want to hear Jimmy's side of, them, side of the
0: story. You, well, you're right. He t- he told a very different version of that to Jimmy Fallon. But go ahead. You want to share that?
1: Well, he his version of it is he was the only I think the only black kid at that time at Forest Hill school and he he'd had a hard time fitting in and that very afternoon he had been invited by the cool kids to go to their house and he smoked his very first joint and so then when he gets a call from this father of a friend of his saying i've got an audition for you but you got to get down there now he he says he was stoned throughout the audition
0: yeah but all worked out
1: We didn't see it, I I don't know, and probably in between my recollection and his recollection, the truth will be somewhere in between.
0: (laughs) The truth is always somewhere in between. So, Aubrey Slash Drake would be with Degrassi for over seven years until his character, held back by a devastating school shooting, would finally graduate. In fact, though, his character's graduation coincided with the year that Drake's debut mixtape, Room for Improvement, was released. Be honest, Linda. Would you have predicted where music would eventually take Aubrey Graham?
1: No, <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's like I had no idea Ida Makes the Movie was going to start a franchise. We were aware that Aubrey was working on his music while he was working for us. And in fact, he had worked out quite a good arrangement with our security guards and our ADs. Because when he would leave work on the set, he would then often go and work on his music during the night. And then in order to not be late for work the next day, he had to deal with the security guards who would let him back to the studio so he could sleep the rest of the night in his dressing room and then be ready for call the, wow. the next day. I, I didn't become aware of that till after the fact. But he, we all knew that he was working on his music and he was working the phones and um, was very serious about it. I don't have an ear for music. You, you know, I, I heard some of his early tapes. I didn't know what to make of them. My husband's far more attuned than I am. And he was, he was saying to me, I, I think <laughs> there's something here.
0: <laughs> hey, your husband's a good talent agent for that. <laughs> But it's but it's been said, Linda, that he was really good about keeping kind of music side was one side of his career, acting was another. There was a real delineation in his world.
1: Yeah, and he he was always always a professional. Just uh, I, one of the things I, I loved about him was he was so close with his mom. And when he when he started to get paychecks from us, he always made sure that his mom was looked after, and and he's still that way to this day. Like I he's He just is always looking after his mom like he's just a he's a he's a good soul he's just a good <laughs> <soul>. <laughs> Well
0: that's what people like to hear. I do have to take this opportunity to clarify, as you know, Linda, the internet is not always accurate, and of course Aubrey's role, Drake's role was a student who was shot and thus had to use a wheelchair while he was on this show from two thousand one to two thousand eight. The internet says. Drake allegedly threatened legal action to get his Degrassi The Next Generation character out of a wheelchair, according to a former writer on the show. Internet true or internet false?
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's just a lovely urban legend. There's no question that towards the end, Aubrey did come into my office and say, Linda, can I please get out of the wheelchair? Because, you know, for somebody like him, who's got such a a, a vibrant presence and has such a beautiful way of moving, it was hard. It was, I think it was season four that we had did the school shooting in. And I remember I had Aubrey into my office because whenever we did a big event with a character, I would always let them know beforehand so that they would have some advance warning as to what was coming up. And he was so excited about, you know, this this episode, and he did a fantastic job in it. And for a couple of years, he was really, oh, my gosh, thank you for the opportunity, you know, very grateful. But then as the years rolled on, <laughs> it was like, do I really have to go in this wheelchair? Can I? And so we did allow the character to go to rehab. Uh, we we did follow that, and very I made a compromise with him at the end when he actually walked. He when he got to graduate, we did have him walk across the stage, albeit with crutches and very awkwardly, because the one thing that we kept saying to him was. We need to be respectful of people who are in wheelchairs. We cannot just all of a sudden have a character have an easy fix because that's not what our show is about. And it's very important. There's a lot of people who are disabled who are watching your character really closely. So, so, um, so, yeah, we had words about it. But, but then that was how we ended up with the compromise at the very end. And, and, I, and I said, if we're going to get there, we have to show what a struggle it is and how hard your character is going to work to achieve that goal. So it's not, it's not too unrealistic for people.
0: Well, what a great point. You can't just have a magic fix suddenly. It, that's what TV was like. There's always a solution at the end of the episode.
1: Yeah. And, and that's, our show is so not about that.
0: And, uh, and to close off this segment, when you're driving around Toronto, Linda, uh, do you play Drake songs and enjoy them as much as everyone else?
1: I do. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Good. Well, we, let's talk about some other prominent names, if you don't mind. Kevin Smith, huge fan, apparently a Degrassi trivia expert. How and why did Kevin Smith end up asking for a Degrassi junior high jacket? <laughs> I had never heard of Kevin Smith back in the day.
1: And we were... I forget what I was shooting. I, I was out. I, I, I was on location somewhere, and evidently Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes right, found my Playing with Time office on Queen Street East, and they went to my secretary there and said, "We would like to meet with Lyndon." And she, they said, "Well, she's on location right now. Well, can you tell her where she's on location?" "No, I cannot tell you that." Um, "Well, can you get her a message?" "Well, she'll be back at such and such." Anyway. They did not get what they wanted. They did not get a meeting with me. They, they, so to put it mildly, Kevin Smith and Jason Mewes were pissed. So they went down to what was at that time, I think it was with Ch- or City TV. They had a speaker's corner. So they went down into Speaker's Corner, and they let loose with a diatribe. Who does this woman think she is? We've only come to Toronto. We've come all the way to Toronto. We're big fans of her show. All we want to do is let her know how much we love her show. We've been treated, we Americans from New Jersey have been treated like shit. Blah, 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 blah. So, anyway, one of my friends said, Linda, you better turn on your TV and have a look. (laughs) Well, I then got to the bottom of it, and I was so embarrassed. So I got I finally got hold of uh, Kevin and uh, I, I said, I am really, really sorry. And I certainly hope we have the opportunity to meet. And is there anything I can do for you? And he said, yeah, I want one of those uh, satin Degrassi <laughs> jacket jackets. And I said, anything I will get you on. What size would you like? Uh, he said, I'd like a small and, like, by this time, I had figured out who Kevin Smith was, and I knew he was not a small man. Yes. I said, oh, oh, well, I mean, I'm prepared. I can get a larger one for you if you like. No, I would like a small. <laughs> Evidently, he wanted a small because he was going to use it in, now, was it? Mallrats. Mall rats. That's
0: right. <laughs> for Shannon Doherty.
1: For Shannon Doherty. And there's a lovely shot in there that starts on the back of her Degrassi jacket. And, uh, and it's, the funny thing is it would take another umpteen years before Kevin and I would actually meet in person. We kept in contact. Yeah. He's a huge fan of the show and I became a fan of his and we kept in contact, but it wasn't until we did Next Generation that we actually met.
0: That's great. And, and now uh, he educates you on little trivia, right? I understand he, he knows all the minutia that even may have passed by you.
1: The first day that he came on set, because he and Jason came up to actually be in one of our uh, Degrassi Next Generation episodes, we started walking through and we had a, a large studio and lots of sets. And I started, I was ta- taking him through and giving him a tour. The tour was the longest tour I've ever done in my life because he kept stopping and he would say, oh, this is Emma's bedroom. This is where the cyber was. This is where that happened. And I would say to him, Kevin, how do you remember all that? I don't remember all those details.
0: (laughs) That's great to have a super fan.
1: (laughs) It was fantastic, yeah.
0: Billy Ray Cyrus as a guest star. He of the Achy Breaky Heart and the father to Miley Cyrus.
1: That's right. He was in town. He was doing a series uh, that he starred in called Doc. And one of the directors on our show also was a director on the Billy Ray Cyrus show, and when Billy Ray Cyrus found out that my direct, that his director there also did Degrassi, he said, do you think you could get me on that show? So when the director came and spoke to me, he said, you've got to be kidding me. Billy <laughs> Ray Cyrus wants to be on our show. He said, yeah. So we just had a little bit part for him as a skanky Australian limo driver, and uh, I was sitting with him while the night we were shooting, and I said, Billy, it's really lovely that you're uh, on Degrassi. We're so privileged to have you here. But wh- why? <laughs> why did you want to do it? He said, I was so happy when I got your call, Linda, because he said, now in my family, I'm going to have some real credibility. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: He said, my daughter loves your show.
0: <laughs> I, I think it's got to be so uh, great for you when you hear these <laughs> stories and find out. Uh, that's how they get their bona fides, by being uh, associated with Degrassi.
1: I know. It's lovely.
0: <laughs> what was Ivan Fekin's role in your professional career?
1: Oh, he, he was a great cheerleader, mentor, supporter. Uh, Ivan had been at, um, oh, sorry, but he, he, the correct pronunciation of his name is Yvonne Fitzsand. And Yvonne had been at, um, I think he was at City. Then he went down and he became a programmer in the States. Then he was hired back to CBC. And he was hired back to CBC right at the time when Degrassi Junior High was just starting. And when it was first programmed, it was programmed in a children's time slot at 5 o'clock on, I think it was 5 o'clock on Sundays. And when Ivan came into town, he called me and said he wanted to have a meeting with me. And so I went down to meet with him and he said, I've been looking at your show. I really like it. And I want to take it out of that ghetto time slot and I want to put it in prime time. And mm. yeah, so th- that's when we first, that was our first meeting. And I, I, <laughs> I was a bit naive in those days because he said, I think we're going to put you on at eight o'clock. And I said, oh, I'm very happy to get out of the 5 o'clock slot, but I don't. I don't think, eight, I think 8 o'clock might be a bit late. And I said, why, what about, why don't we do it at 7? And he looked at me like I was some kind of idiot and said, Linda, that's like not all the affiliates are on board then. You know, we, wanted, we want this to be national. I want your show to go on at 8 o'clock. And, and I said, oh, well, I don't know, but would you promise me if we don't do very well there that you would find another time slot for me? Yeah, he said, and he rolled his eyes and he said, "Okay, Linda, I will promise you that. But I'm telling you, I am the broadcaster, and I'm telling you, it's going to do very well at eight o'clock on Monday."
0: He was right, and how great to have a champion for your for your show.
1: And then he became uh, he left CBC a number of years later to move to what was Baton Broadcasting, that would become CTV. And he was head of CTV right at the time in 2000 when we came back with Degrassi Next Generation, and when we came back with the the new iteration of the show, we had great interest from all the broadcasters, which was which was wonderful. It's not often that you get you know great interest, and but Yvonne, said, it was just really clear. He said, "I want this show," yeah. and it was like, and it was the best thing we could have done. Because it was a time when there was the deal happening with uh, Bell Globe Media. And because there was a big sale going on, CT, they had to put special money back into the independent production uh, community. So uh, that was part of the significant benefits of the deal. And those significant benefits, we got direct benefit of on Degrassi, because we were able not just to do 13 episodes a year, we were able to increase it to 22 episodes a year. So uh, Yvonne has been incredibly uh, important and a big champion of Degrassi all along in all its different incarnations.
0: And you know, Linda, on that note, perhaps you want to make a comment about, the, in, in your view, the importance of public broadcasting, both CBC here, PBS in the States.
1: Oh, well, my early shows were all with the public broadcaster. And we, I did all of Degrassi Junior High with, um, sorry, all of the kids of Degrassi with CBC. Then when we were developing Degrassi Junior High, something very lovely happened. We won a Prix genez for one of our earlier episodes. And the Prix genez happens every other year in Germany. And it's like the Academy Awards for children's television. And at that uh, screening was an executive from WGBH Boston, part of um, PBS. And she saw the show and she got in touch with the, the, uh, the representative from CBC who was there as well. And together they came back and approached us and said, we would love to work with you to develop Degrassi Junior High. And... In the public broadcasting sphere, it was really fantastic because part of WGBH's mandate was that they would create teacher's guides that would go along with all our episodes so that they had a separate pot of funding for the educational side of it. So in those days for junior high and and high, we were so well looked after by both the Canadian public broadcaster and PBS out of the States.
0: It's fabulous. You were able to combine that educational component with the entertainment Yeah. Well, as we close off the Degrassi portion, we have to close with some trivia that not even Kevin Smith would know. (laughs) Linda, talk about the real, actual Degrassi Street, which in reality is two words. Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) It's a capital D-E, capital G. (laughs) And it's actually named after one of Toronto's founding fathers, Sir Philip Degrassi. So it's got historical significance to it. My same wonderful friend who was the librarian who had found me the book, I to Makes a Movie, when we were getting ready to shoot that show, we had no location for it. And we had no money, so we didn't have the ability to go out and buy a fancy, rent a fancy location. So Bruce said, look, Linda, I'm teaching during the day. As long as you look after my dog and don't leave a mess in my house, you're welcome to use my house (laughs) as a location. So we did. And as I told you previously, once that film was done, both CBC and our distributor wanted more. And we thought, okay, what are we going to call this more? Well, it so happened that Bruce's house was number 98 Degrassi Street. Ah. And we thought, wait a minute. We would call this show the Kids of Degrassi. So it wasn't like it wasn't like it. It was a great brainstorming. It was just like a, one of those wonderful serendipitous, you know, happenstances, and it went. And the name lived. It just lived with us. And we, for just kind of simplicity of design, we just amalgamated the the two parts of the word, and uh, it's. Who would have known? 500 episodes plus would have that name in it.
0: (laughs) Amazing. Well, that's a great piece of trivia because it was not a C-suite, high-level marketing decision. It was just a good decision that ended up being great. Linda, your book, The Mother of All Aldegrassi, published by ECW Press, how did you enjoy the process of putting this book together?
1: Well, I have to say, uh, writing this memoir was a learning curve for me. My experience with writers is, as the producer of the show, I would have weekly meetings with my writers, and we would talk about scripts in various stages, and I would say, I like this, I like this, let's change this, let's do that, see you back here next week, and back would come a new draft of the script, and that would be fantastic. When I sat down in front of my computer and started to write, I had no team. There was nobody to bounce ideas off, there was nobody to, you know, in a week was going to come back with pages, so... It was actually getting started was really tough. It's really tough. And and also trying to figure out, because I was telling a double story, really, because it's the story, it's my life story. It's also the story of the evolution of Degrassi, because you can't really tell one of those stories without the other. So it was how to find a way to entwine those two stories without one taking over from the other, how to... I I used a lot of my experience from the editing room because I played with time quite a bit. I would sometimes flash forward and I would flash backwards because I spent so much time in the editing room that came quite easily to me. But but it was once I got a draft down and my agent could respond to it and we could then he would give me some tangible notes. And then when we got Jack David and ECW on as the publisher and I would get got an editor, I started to really enjoy the process. Because I was starting to work with a team of people again and getting getting feedback, and you know, it, that that's television as a team sport, and I had missed that in the early days of writing my book.
0: Yeah, and talk about the uh, moment that the first physical copy ended up in your hands.
1: <laughs> yep, I I came home. Nobody else was home. It was just me. I came home, and there was a box of books in our front hallway. So I, I didn't know who to call, so I called my publicist and I said, Ian, there's a box of books. <laughs> <laughs> he said, don't open it. Oh, boy. He came over and then the two of us ripped open the, the box and we held up the book. And it was the first time I had seen it with the hardcover, with all the photos in color, and it, and it felt substantive. <laughs> So he, he took some lovely shots of me opening it and the two of us just sat there leafing through and say, it's real.
0: Yeah. What a great moment. Now, this book, The Mother of All Degrassi, as we noted, published by ECW Press, where do you recommend people should go to buy their copy?
1: Well, I, I hope it's in their local bookstore because I would love to see people supporting their local bookstore because we know that they're struggling. Um, I'm sure I I know it's in the larger chains and of course it's available on Amazon. And if you've got a prime account, you get it the next day. (laughs) (laughs) True. But, but, you know, I really encourage people to go first to their local bookstore if they're because we, we just want local booksellers to do well.
0: Good. Well, well said. What is next for Linda Schuyler?
1: Um, right now, I'm quite involved with Kids Help Phone, and in fact, you'll probably notice that on my book, I'm giving all my author proceeds to Kids Help Phone, who have just launched a the biggest ever campaign for uh, kids' mental health, because coming out of the pandemic, we have like a shadow pandemic, which is the mental health of our young people, actually the mental health of everybody, but I'm particularly um, keen on, on how we really help alleviate mental health at, for young people. So so that's taken quite a bit of my time. I'm really enjoying working with those folks. We've, we've set a really high bar in the kind of money that we want to raise, and I think it's all doable. So I'm busy there. I've been doing a lot of lecturing at universities, which I really enjoy being out there with, um, you know, meeting the students and just engaging in conversation with them. So, yeah, there we go.
0: That's great. And, and are you big on social media? Where can people best follow you and know what you're up to?
1: I have no footprint in social media. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, that's
0: probably good.
1: I know my publicist calls me a rock star. I, I think <laughs> no, I mean, people can find me. Um, but well, I... <laughs> Wait, there are there are mother the mother of Aldergrassi does have a presence. If you if you put that in, you'll you'll, you'll come up with something in the okay. magical universe out there
0: that's great well if if you need to find her you better know how and if you don't need to if you don't know how to find her that's that's, that's an issue uh, i want to thank you for your time today linda It was great getting to know you and hearing all your stories and learning about the book and uh, i want to wish you continued success going forward
1: oh thank you very much it was very lovely to chat with you
0: it was my pleasure And to the listeners, we say thank you for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. And on behalf of Linda Schuyler, I am Andrew Applebaum saying mahalo.
1: Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that
0: live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.